You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. For Old Testament reading and sermon texts for today. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, and Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalem, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zup, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And God said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was, and they went up to the hill to the city. As they went up to the hill to the city, uh, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over, all, over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, I am not a Benjaminite from the least, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? 
Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of at, I'm sorry at the head of those who had been invited who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, "Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside." So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, "See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests." So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he passes on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. So Father, take up your word now and cause it to bear fruit. God, may we be more faithful with what you've given us. May we trust in your promises. May we hope in your sovereign providence. And God, may we believe everything that you say. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, One of the more frustrating things about the Bible is that it comes to us, for the most part, in stories. And now to be sure, there's epistles um, and there's letters and there's letters that kind of give us Uh, doctrine and then what you should do with that doctrine. Um, We have those places in scripture um, and based on uh, kind of most Protestant preaching, um, um, you you would guess that that was the most of scripture. But but in reality, most of scripture actually comes to us in the form of stories. And this is frustrating. You know why it's frustrating? Because I want to know what I'm supposed to believe and what I'm supposed to do kind of how we operate. We like to be told, here's the three things you're to believe. They all start with the letter T, and they rhyme. And then here is the three things you should go home and do this week. But then you open to a book like Samuel, and you have none of that. You have stories. And then, in the midst of those stories, you get to chapter 9. And chapter 9 is a head-scratcher. You get to chapter 9, and it's like one of those television series where um, the writer had written eight episodes. Beautiful story arc. It all fit together nicely. And then the network comes to him and said, we need a ninth episode. So he writes a random episode about the protagonist going home, being reconciled to his brother. Before the next episode, he flies back and continues the main line of the story. So as we come to chapter 9... And nothing, no public action really really moves forward. So some really important things happen. But what God does here is he tells us a story. And then from that, we begin to see certain aspects, certain things about his character. We also see certain things about who we are. But but here's, here's just by way of introduction, one of the things I want us to consider. What does it tell us about God that he gave us stories 
But what does it tell us about what he's doing in history? That he gave us stories. To be sure, he gave us songs to sing in the Psalms. He gave us um, some really crazy prophets. He gives us law, but even when he gives us law, it's embedded in a story. But what does it tell us about the nature and the character of God? Um, the, the way he, the re, he reveals himself to us, um, the way uh, that he reveals what we're to believe, what we're to put our hope in, it is not merely be kind of, um, by laying out by fiat a, a set of propositions and then a set of actions, but rather he tells us about himself and he tells us about what he's doing in the world. He tells us about what he's doing in our lives and the lives of our children by first telling us, Stories, stories about lost donkeys, stories about a leg, (laughs) stories about a man who's confused, stories. So as we consider that, let's step back into the story of 1 Samuel. Where are we right now? Um, We know that uh, last week, the, the people of Israel, Samuel has been judging Israel. His sons have begun to judge Israel. Um, and, and there was kind of a big time gap between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Um, and in that time gap, Samuel, um, his sons uh, grow up. His sons are not like their father. Um, one of the patterns that you're going to see kind of unfolding um, is a relationship between fathers and sons. It's central to the story of First Samuel. Um, and so you have Eli good father, or a, a, a good figure in the story, um, followed by two corrupt sons. Um, he then adopts a new son, Samuel. Um, Samuel comes, uh, good figure um, in the story of Samuel. Um, his two sons, wicked sons. Um, in this story, we're actually going to see that he adopts a new son, Saul. Um, this kind of thing unfolds. It's, it's, it's one, of the, um, one of the devices that the author of Samuel is using and to tell us or kind of keep us clued in to what's happening in the story. Um, and so Samuel has two corrupt sons. Um, the people of Israel come to Samuel and ask, um, ask for a king, and not just any king, but they want a king like the other nations. It's a key phrase in the passage last week, a key idea in the passage last week. Samuel is bothered by this. And he's bothered by this. Um, and he goes and presents the request of Israel to God, um, and God um, spells out for us in chapter 8 exactly why Samuel is right to be bothered by this. Um, Because two things are happening simultaneously. The people of Israel are rejecting Samuel as their judge, as their ruler, as the one that was sent to them, and ultimately they're rejecting God himself. They do not want God as their king. They want a new king that they can count on, a new king that they can trust in, a new king that will make a name for them among the nations, a new king that will fight for them rather than having to depend on God to fight for them. Um, They want a new set of politics, a new set of policies. They want a new ruler. And then surprisingly, God tells uh, tells Samuel, warn them, but then grant them their request. So Samuel warns the people of how horribly this is going to go. They will, in fact, become slaves. They will not have God as their king and their lord. They will serve wicked, corrupt 
human rulers, they will become slaves rather than free to the rule and the reign of God. And underneath all of that, I want to hold out to you again, consider Samuel. He's faithfully served for decades, judging, bringing rule and order to the tribes, speaking the word of God, dependent on God. He's faithfully served and faithfully led and consider Samuel. He knows what they're asking for. Um, not, not only does he know this is going to go really, really badly. It's going to go horribly. Not only does he, do, does he know that, he also knows they're rejecting him. Consider that for just a minute. He's faithfully served for decades. Traveling from city to city, bringing order, justice, bringing the word of God to bear on the people of God, fighting for reform, fighting for renewal, fighting for God's people to be faithful. And at the end of it, they don't want him anymore. So that's where we find ourselves the beginning of chapter 9. Samuel knows this is going to go badly. But he also knows, he, he also knows not only is this going to end badly, kind of situationally, he also knows that this is actually rooted in sin. I mean, it's actually really, really important that you make kind of this distinction in what's going on in the text. And the people of Israel are sinning. And not because they're asking for a king. There's, there's nothing wrong with kings per se. We, we know um, throughout kind of the Pentateuch, everything that's come before this has pointed to the reality that one day Israel would have a king. In fact, there were promises um, rooted in the fact that Israel would one day have a king. One of them's uh, very important, actually, to keep in mind with this text. Um, uh, Judah was told um, that the, the, the scepter, the, the, um, the place of rulership or, or lordship or kingship over Israel would never depart from Judah, which is why it's strange in this text that we find um, the scepter first given to someone from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, but we know um, and it's not the problem with this request is not a king per se, and that's it's, it's important to distinguish between what's driving Israel to want a king and the kind of king they want over against over against just the we want a king per se. Um, if having a king was evil, then what Samuel does in granting that request would be evil. But having a king is not evil. Having a king like the other nations is evil. H having a king um, as kind of the mechanism by which you are casting off the authority of God and casting off um, the, the authority of the one that God has sent, that's evil. But the desire for a king in and of itself is not evil. But Saul, um, Samuel um, has heard this request, um, and, and where we find him at the beginning of chapter 9 is he knows certain things. And it's really important that you, that you remember he knows these things. One, he knows this is going to go badly. Two, he knows that the hearts of the people are wicked. They're evil. They're in rebellion 
against God. And yet God has commanded him to do something anyway. So with that background, which is really important, to to know what Samuel knows, because the text has told us what Samuel knows. And he knows it because God has told him it. Then we read chapter 9, and what Samuel does is surprising. Before we get to what Samuel does, um, the, the text introduces us to a really important character. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you have probably certain opinions about Saul. Um, and, and so it, the, the temptation would be, in fact, a whole lot of commentators' temptation is to read into what happens over the next two, two or three chapters uh, a, a really kind of negative um, view of Saul. But, but, but here's what you need to know. Everything in the text over the next few chapters um, is going to indicate for us that Saul seems to be okay. Seems humble. He's on, I mean, even in this text, you, you see him, um, his father is Kish. Um, Kish is a great man, a man of wealth. Uh, it's translated man of wealth here in, um, in the ESV, but, but the, the text just describes him as a, like a big man, an honorable man, a, a, a great man um, among the Benjamites. And here he is, he's lost his donkeys. We can kind of tell through timeline, um, basically in terms of what unfolds over the next couple of chapters. Uh, Saul has sons at this point. He has sons that are going to serve in the army. Um, so Saul is probably late 30s, um, early 40s when we arrive here. Um, and he is out looking for his father's donkeys. I don't know if your father has ever lost a donkey, you 40-year-olds in this room, um, but if he calls you and sends you out to go find his donkeys, um, I don't, I think it would take some humility to say, yes, I'll go and travel around the countryside to find your donkeys, Dad. Um, and so Saul um, goes to find the donkeys. We, we have um, Saul uh, giving this this very um, humble confession in verse 21. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest or the weakest or the smallest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then you have, have, have you spoken to me in, in this way? We're going to find him next chapter um, hiding because he doesn't want to be dragged out in front of all the people. Um, the description here of him of being a very handsome man. In fact, the handsomest man in all the land, um, which is a, I like to describe Many of you that way. Um, uh, here is um, all of that. Generally, um, appearance uh, carries some sort of weight uh, in Scripture. That he is, um, he looks like a ruler. He looks like a king. He's tall. He's head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. He's good looking. Um, he, he's also humble. He, he's, he's, he's going to look for his father's donkeys. And when um, Samuel begins to say crazy things like, you and your father's house are the desire of Israel, um, his response is, how can you say these kinds of things to me? Um, I'm from a humble house. And, and here's an interesting thing. Um, when he says, I, is not my clan the humblest or the smallest or the weakest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin, we actually know that's, he, he's not being inaccurate. He's not kind of feigning humility. Um, just previous to this, in Israel's history, in the, um, towards the end of Judges, uh, ben, uh, the, the rest of the tribes of Israel go to war with Benjamin. When they go to war with Benjamin, um, because Benjamin, uh, the, the tribe of Benjamin wouldn't pu- uh, punish uh, some wicked men in their midst, 
um, they are reduced to 600 men as a tribe. And so here's a weak tribe, a small tribe, a tribe that the rest of the tribes had gone to war with. Here in the midst of that is a man who, by all appearances in these early chapters, is humble, a man who isn't grasping after power, a man who's good-looking, a man who's tall, a man who, by all appearances, looks like things are going to go well, who's out looking for his father's lost donkeys. I mean, as, as he's out looking for his father's lost donkeys, he's not very good at finding donkeys. He's not a donkey tracker um, like some of you. Uh, he can't find the donkeys, and so they go from place to place to place, can't, can't find them. Um, and then he and his servant decide, hey, let's go find the seer. Let's go find Samuel, and maybe he can tell us where my father's donkeys are. Um, as this unfolds, God comes to Samuel and says to him, um, the, uh, um, the man um, that, that's going to be king is coming to you. Samuel knows this, um, and, and you really kind of need to understand that in order to understand everything that, that Samuel then sets up um, in what unfolds. Um, the Lord says to Samuel, you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. Now, Samuel gets that word. Here's the king that we were just talking about. The king like the other nations. The king that will result in enslavement of God's people. The king that um, will be the fulfillment of, of what Samuel has just told the people of Israel why they shouldn't want a king like the other nations. Now God comes to Samuel and says, tomorrow... You're going to meet the guy. What would you expect to happen next? I would expect at least rudeness. Right? I I would expect at least kind of half-hearted anointing. Mumbling the anointing. Ah, you'll be king. You're going to be a crummy king, though. I would expect um, no honor, really. Might expect Samuel to try to stop the whole thing. Might expect Samuel to like try to take things in his own hands. Wouldn't that be the temptation? You're the ruler. You're the judge. You've done so faithfully and righteously. You've done so in absolute dependence on the word of God. And you're meeting the guy who's there to replace you. And not only is he going to replace you, he's going to wreck the thing. This isn't a moment for glee. This isn't a moment to kind of go over the top in pomp and kindness and honor. Um, this is a moment to be frustrated. This is a moment, um, if, at all, if there's ever a moment of temptation to like throw up your hands to God and say, like, you anoint him. But is that what Samuel does? Look what Samuel does. He says to Saul, You are the desire. You and your house are the desire of Israel. 
He hosts a feast for him. And this, by the way, is a priestly feast. It's a sacrificial feast. Um, and in this feast, uh, the, the, the kind of feast this is, this offering, um, uh, an offering was made to God and then the portions from that offering were then given to God's people to eat. And actually, uh, the, the communion is based on um, this particular offering. Um, and he, um, as they sit down, for this feast, he gives Saul the seat of honor, the seat that belongs um, to the judge, the priest, to sit at the head of the table. He gives to Saul a special portion, um, the, the priestly portion, the portion that would only be given um, to the high priest, the, the, um, the one that would only be given um, to, to the prophet, to the one of honor. Um, he gives it to Saul. As though Saul is his son. As though Saul actually belongs to the priestly family. He gives him the best place to sleep. It's an odd little detail in this story. He gets to sleep on the roof. Why does that matter? Because in that time and in that place, very hot, arid place, place of honor, the place that was given to those um, who, who should be shown deference, was the roof, the roof of the house. So Samuel has a bed prepared for him and it is the best place to sleep. Um, it's the coolest place to sleep. Um, and maybe this stood out to me in particular because I'm always hot, sweaty. When I stay at people's houses, I want to find the coolest place imaginable. So I think this, well, this was a highlight for me if I'm Saul. I got to sleep where it's cool. And then we, when you go into chapter 10, here's the interesting thing. Um, the, 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 the actions of, of Samuel throughout chapter 9 are, are to bless, to bless, to bless, to honor, to honor, to honor. And then you get to chapter 10, and God does the same thing. He blesses Saul. Um, uh, he honors Saul. He pours out his spirit on Saul. He gives him a new heart and makes him a new man. Um, God is um, um, in on this deal with Samuel. Here are, are the two figures rejected by the people of God. Um, and here is their replacement. And what do they both do? Bless and honor and defer and anoint speak highly of, give promises to. So what do we do with that? I think taking this thought and, and, and placing it in the larger thought, God has given us stories. I think we find something here that's in direct conflict with everything we're taught in our society about how to think about the meaning of our lives. Do you know that you play a supporting role? You're not the protagonist. You're not the hero of the story. The world and the hope of the world or the success of whatever God is up to in this particular moment, what he's up to in the larger story of history does not hinge on you. I, I mean, in the story that's actually unfolding, um, the reality is, is, is 
Um, it, it, you're probably like the guy who is behind the scene um, um, that, that where, that where the camera is focused on these two characters, the argument they're having, um, or the key discussion they're having. Um, and you see in the background, just faintly across the corner, top left corner of the screen, um, you see um, a couple of footsteps skirt across the screen. That's you. And we live in a moment in which we're told over and over and over again. Um, in fact, the, the, the whole of even the way technology is structured is that you're the center of the story. Um, uh, you're the great hope of the story. Um, that when you come to church, church is about you and your fulfillment and your happiness. Um, uh, when you go to your work, um, you're the guy that can solve the problems. Um, when you uh, approach marriage, this is about your fulfillment and, and finding meaning um, in marriage. When you think about the technology, of this day. Um, we have Instagram where people take selfies. In fact, there's a whole industry of a thing called selfie sticks. Like what's wrong with a society where millions and millions of dollars can be generated in revenue from selling a stick so you can take a picture of yourself? Just meditate on that for a moment. I mean, we can... You walk around downtown and people walk around the streets with headphones in, kind of creating the soundtrack of their lives as they are the protagonist as they walk through downtown and the world now centers um, as, as with their selfie sticks um, as, they, um, as they film themselves engaging in, in the center of their story. Consider this for a second. I mean... If anybody has a right to think they're the center of this story, it's Samuel. I mean, the book opened with him. Even better, actually, it didn't open with him. It opened with his mom singing and pleading with God that, that he would send Samuel. And then Samuel comes. And so you might think in the midst of all of that, if anybody has a right to think like, hey, the story of the renewal of God's people, it's about Samuel. He's the linchpin. For Israel to reject Samuel, for Samuel to exalt anybody else, it's the end of the story. But even Samuel here recognizes he's simply a supporting role. He's not that big of a deal. So I want to begin, and if you're a visitor here, welcome. You're not really that important. And not just the visitors. It's not like everybody else is important and the visitors are not important. None of you are that important. You're all like bit players. Your importance isn't seen, is that your feet walked behind the main character, the people watching the show would get the impression that they are in a city, and there's people walking around behind them. Because we think about um, the fact that our God tells stories, that our God um, reveals himself um, in stories. When we, when we are shocked and actually scandalized by the way he tells stories, um, maybe the most scandalizing thing, if we'll just admit it, is he tells stories where you and I aren't the key characters, we're not the protagonists. 
story doesn't hinge on us and our importance. So whether it's social media, whether it's a, a culture right now that is obsessed as we prayed earlier during our confession of sin, saying that your desires are the most important thing in the universe. Whether it is um, a kind of pietism that's infected the church in which the whole gospel is reoriented to be fundamentally about you and how you feel and how God wants you to feel. Rather than about God, rather than about the glory of God, rather than about the, the, the marvel that God forgives sins and that he reigns over all things. But think about how the gospel has been reduced in so many books and churches and podcasts and blogs to, to say that the, the story of the gospel is that God loves you, that he, he makes much of you, that you are um, the hero of the story, where God becomes a bit player in the great story of Nadehern, there's God's feet in the background. Here's Nate laying things out on the street. This is insane. And yet it is pervasive in our age. I remember um, years ago, uh, there was a song by a Christian musician I actually liked the musician quite a bit, but he had this song that you would sing in worship, and it was, um, it was Jesus, A-O, A-O. It's just you and me here now. One, that's weird. And two, I remember every time we went to this church, um, every time we sang it, I would look around and go like, but it's not. Like there's, <laughs> there's actually a whole bunch of us in here right now. <laughs> But this kind of understanding of Christianity, understanding of worship that centers me and my story and my comfort and my loves um, and my affections and my desires and my hopes for fulfillment and my importance, I, I think it, it runs into the wall of reality. And one of my prayers as we look at this text is that we would lear learn from Samuel. Um, like, because if anybody has, I, I, I don't know if, if maybe your mother prophesied and sung a great song about the overcoming of evil and the putting down of oppression and the um, exaltation of the righteous at your birth, and maybe that was inspired by God. Um, my guess is that most of you didn't have that, um, but, but Samuel did. And not only did he have that, he knew all of the baggage that was coming with Saul. He, he knew the hearts of the people of Israel and what they were chasing, the idolatries that they were chasing after in demanding Saul as their king. Um, and so he had two things going against him. One, he, he, he had a song about how pivotal he was in the accomplishment of God's purposes for his people. And two, he knew where things were about to go were horrific and awful and terrible. And instead of, of kind of scratching his head, instead of kicking dirt on Saul, instead of kind of I'm throwing up his hands and going to live in the hills by himself. He shows honor. He shows deference. He obeys God and he accepts the fact that he's not the linchpin of the story. He has no idea what's going to come, except that there's going to be something really bad next. 
and he faithfully obeys the word of the Lord with what's right in front of him. See, the problem is when you think you're the center of the story, when that runs up against reality, the reality that should strike you often, even though it's hidden from you on every TV commercial um, and every time you turn on your smartphone, but the reality that, that you can't help but running up against, I mean, easiest example, three-month-old crying at 2 a.m. Don't they know you have to go to work at 6 but they don't care. And God evidently didn't care enough to like create three-month-old babies who don't cry in the middle of the night. It's very rude of him and the baby. Reality runs smack dab against the simplest and smallest of things that remind you of how wonderfully small you are, how remarkably unimportant you are. Um, And if you've been fooled into thinking that this world is about you, that God is about you, that your story ultimately is about you, um, then in that moment you will grow cynical, you'll grow angry, you'll lose faith, you'll do a weird thing called deconstruct, um, you'll, you'll, do, you'll do all kinds of things other than simply love, delight in, trust in God, and obey him with the next thing directly in front of you. So parents, what if the most important thing that could happen this morning in worship is not that you get some sort of inspiration in your heart, so you can go out those doors and live this week as a great and pivotal player in the purposes of God in our city. What if the most important thing that happened to you, the most important thing you could do this morning is to put your arm around your son or your daughter during the confession of sin and explain to them again that our God forgives sins. But what if the most important part of your story isn't how highly successful you were in your business? Ten minutes you went out in the backyard and kicked a soccer ball with your son. Husbands, but what if the most important thing that you do this week isn't about you and your success and your personal development? It was right before you got home, you you recognized again that you were going home to serve and to love, to lead a wife. That you weren't the center of the story. That God had given you an opportunity to serve someone else in your story. Be faithful, serve, love. But what is the most important thing going on in your life right now? Isn't you and your fulfillment and the new things you're learning and the new books you're reading or, or your excitement about watching some new TV show tonight um, or, or your personal career path or if you get married or not what, 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 right now and if you find the right spouse what is the most important thing about your life is something that happens to your great grandchildren or that one of your great grandchildren does I mean what if your children this is a test what if your children 
are infinitely more important in what God's doing in the world than you are. Is that okay with you? Or have you built an understanding of the importance of your life and the importance of, of your life in terms of its relationship to others such that everyone else's life basically centers on you? When you tell the story of your great-grandchildren, it's like, oh, they're going to remember the day that they, um, they're going to be able to tell their, their, their parents, um, not their parents, their, their friends at school, yeah, my great-grandfather, man, that was, that was Brian Brown. He was awesome. Like, if you've considered the fact that your great-grandchildren won't know your name, they'll be probably told a story at some point, and it'll be like an annoying story because they want to get on to the, like opening the presents or whatever the thing is they're supposed to be doing. But like, like, within a generation or two, nobody will have a clue who you are. Um, and, and here's, again, if you're a visitor, Welcome. I think this is the most liberating news in the world. You don't have to be a big deal. The world doesn't center on you. It centers on God. And it centers on the promises of God and the glory of God. If you want to know the secret to understanding um, um, the the, the scriptures, the the stories um, that that just keep coming at us again and again and again in the Bible, here's the secret. Um, the, The key actor, the central actor in everything that unfolds is God. It is about God. I was just thinking this morning about this, about this truth at the heart of this text. And I just was considering again, like, what's one, at least one of the things that God does as he comes to Abraham and he commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. I think there's a number of things going on in that text. But you know what I think one of them is? To teach Abraham the most central and glorious truth that my promises, my purposes, my story does not hinge on you. You are not the center of it. You're not, the, um, you're not the most important figure and character in it. You are a bit player. And the glory of that, please hear me, the glory of that um, is, it is so liberating to feel your smallness and to marvel at the, and the glory, um, at the bigness and the majesty and the sovereignty of God. I mean, why do people go to places like Glacier National Park or the Grand Canyon or, or the Rocky Mountains, which are right here? Do you go there so that you feel big and important? Tell me about it. Like when you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look over it, do you feel really important in that moment? No. You feel tiny. Like you might fall and no one will find you or miss you. That is so liberating and free. To be free from the pressure of having to have a a whole world centered on you. But instead free to orient your life to others. And most of all to orient your life to the glory of God. And the majesty of God. And the purposes of God. And to be faced with moments like this one that Samuel had. Where you're looking at a situation and you're looking at a man and saying, I have no idea what, what in the world is God doing right now. I'm rejected, he's rejected, and God told me to anoint him 
And in that moment, because you're not the center of the story, because you're small and you feel your smallness and you feel your inability to see comprehensively really anything, but particularly what God happens to be up to right in front of you, you can simply obey. You can simply do the next right thing in front of you. You can get up at 3 a.m. and take care of that baby. So rude. You can go to work and just be faithful and not be deeply dissatisfied because you don't think your work has enough meaning. (laughs) Just be faithful and work hard and go to bed tired and, and, and be surrounded by people that you have spent your life loving not having to define um, everything in terms of yourself and your own importance, but instead to look at what's right in front of you. Perhaps it's a Saul. Perhaps it's like this just isn't going to go well. Maybe you've been given some sort of prophetic insight like Samuel was. So no, this is terrible, terrible, terrible. And even in the face of it to do Faithfully do what God has called you and commanded you to do right now, having no idea the meaning of it. This is really what I think chapter 9 is about. The call of God's people in, in the face of your own rejection, in the face of confusion, in the face of, I don't know how to make sense of what happened this week or what's going to happen next week. But what I do know is that God has commanded me to do this. He's commanded me to work hard. He's commanded me to love my kids. He's commanded me um, to center my life on his glory, his name, his renown, and to trust him so much that I'm willing to be small and simply obey everything that he commands. So may you be overwhelmed with joy and liberty, reveling in your relative unimportance, your smallness, and in turn, God's massiveness, Jesus' centrality, the freedom that comes from knowing that God has called you to trust him, to simply obey him with all your heart, that he is accomplishing all that he has set out to do, even when it doesn't look like he's going to accomplish all that he set out to do. What's most fascinating about this story is is in this simple obedience, God is planting the seed that will grow up to the tree of the king who was to come. There's a a number of clues in this text that things aren't going to go well, none of which are necessarily Saul's character. And we know from um, Genesis 49, the scepter, the rulership, the king, the king that was promised by God would come from the house of Judah, not the house of Benjamin. And we also know that that, that, that the things that will unfold over the course of the next few chapters will lead to the coming of David. But you might think, well, that's the center of the story. Nope. You see, David himself is simply a father 
out of whom, out of whom his family would come Jesus, the Messiah, the King to rule all the nations. The center of the story is always, always, always Jesus. He is the hero. He is the King. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the renewer of Israel. Let's pray. And then we'll come to this table. Table where the king, the true king who was to come, actually takes the feast that's given to him. He gives it to us.